You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Guess what this week is for me, Kirk? This week is your fourth week back to it's running. third. My bad. But it's third. retest week because I tested out before okay. I started training so i did two tests back to back i think i told you about that i said i'm just having a big weekend because i'd been camping and gaining too much bad weight and i had to sweat it out so i did the test did three weeks of training and retest this week so i feel like a real athlete for the first time since january and you're practicing what you preach it is it is just really incremental what i'm doing by the numbers so you retested four weeks Three, apart? Three, actually, because I wanted to get those noob t- gains. I was just so excited. I just thought, you know what? I'm doing it again. That takes some mental fortitude, man. So which um, which distances or events are you Well, I can only go uphill right now. 10% or above is like where my – and I think I'm ready to go lower, but there's no reason in the world for me to rush it right now. So I'm just right. erring no, on the side no. of no, no backsliding with my injury. So – I can only do uphill, so I chose the uphill versions of the 5K time trial and my nine-mile outdoor loop. So basically the treadmill challenge for 15 minutes and then 60-minute max gain for vertical feet in an hour. So you're doing both of those this week. So let's let's, let's leave this a mystery, but I know you did the 15-15 already this week. How much did you improve on in three weeks in distance? And to remind you, I know you all hear this and you've, you've heard it before. 15 minutes at 15% incline, max distance mm-hmm. covered. What was uh, your Exactly one tenth of a mile better. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 160 a lot. meters. That's a ton at. at so uh, over the course incline. of a 5K, if I if you finished 160 meters ahead of me, you'd be at 3.1 when I was at three miles, and we consider that 35 to 40 seconds difference. So that's I cut huge. a little over half a minute off my 5K in three weeks. Not bad. Not bad. I will take it. And you're going to test max gain later this week, I trust? Saturday. Heck yeah. You have a big week, man. And then I, and then I assume you're going to go every four weeks or so, four to six. Yeah, prob- I'm probably going to do, I've retested in three, I'm going to retest in then in four, and then probably six after that. Know what I'm sensing in you, which I have not sensed since we've met. And how long have we known each other now? At mm-hmm. least four years, three years, four years. Um, you're actually excited to time mm-hmm. trial. You pro have self-proclaimed dreaded the time trial in general and understandably so and i feel like you're chomping at the bit a little bit man i feel like you got this new perspective and vigor for all this training stuff yeah i do it's absence makes the heart grow fonder kirk i have missed the feeling of being happily miserable where Mm -hmm. i've backed away from all forms of pain and races and training more often than not for too long. And I miss just feeling like a killer. And how lucky are you to have a body that can now do that? I feel really lucky. In fact, I talked to Matt Novakovich mm-hmm. today and I learned something about him. He had a meniscus done. In fact, he had two meniscus mm. injuries. He had the operation on one and didn't on the other. And he says his left knee feels like Superman or his right knee feels like Superman. His left says, I wish you would have operated on it. He said, but you, he said, it took me four months, but he got it. He started training again 
actually like uphill crazy amount of incline in like April and that July he won Mount Marathon for the first time and wow. the only time. So he's like, it, it took four months before I really felt like myself. And then suddenly my fitness, like all the incline work I'd done paid off and I had the best mountain race of my life. So that was nice to, nice to well, hear you that have, today. Yeah, that's great, man. You have more than four months oh, yeah. too. So things are looking bright, sir. Yeah. So I'm practicing being very, very uncomfortable. And we talked yesterday, but I want to reiterate to the, to the family here that I am really rusty at the skill of knowing my body. I've always prided myself on a knowing my body and I can't accurately tell right now if I'm dying or hurting. Mm. But that's a normal, I think you're in a normal phase of the comeback process so. because you're relearning. You're starting, you're starting from scratch. The, the slate has been cleared for you for a long time. So I think that's normal. But it's given me that experience that I know other people that I've coached or worked with or talked to have routinely. But because I had two decades mm -hmm. of running, I wasn't used to that. I'm back in those shoes, not knowing, is this pain or is this the sign that I'm about to fall off a cliff? Kind of fun. Yeah. Well, what did you find out in your 15-15 test? It was, was it pain. pain or were you, uh, you weren't coming backwards on that? No, I, the last three minutes, I started going up like two tenths, two tenths. And then I bumped up two miles per hour and then another half, like just grabbing at speed. I, was, I, I forgot about that yep. point that you get to. I know about it, but I forgot what it felt like to get to that point where I can't go any longer at this pace. It's too miserable. I either have to quit or accelerate. And I forgot about that or yeah, accelerate you, part where it changes your system and it changes your pain to a different manageable level. And I hit that yesterday for the last three minutes. I was like, I can't run at this mile per hour any longer, but I'll do another mile per hour and I'll get a minute of free life off of it. That's something we haven't talked about yet. That's something I firmly believe and have realized over the years when you're in a workout and you're hurting on the treadmill in particular and you're just so miserable at that intensity, you really do have two options and it's not stay there. You either go down or go up and the outcome is kind of the same, yeah. which you don't think would make sense, but it does work. Yeah, it does. And I, this used to happen to me all the time in track. It would be like 500 meters to go. I am just dying in a mile, 500 meters to go. I'm ready to quit. As soon as I, the bell lap rings, it's like, I can't do this any longer. And I make a move and then it's like, okay, I'm free. You just... Uh -huh. You get you you spend one second too long in that that whatever pain level you're at, and it's just like the cumulative fatigue mentally of experiencing that one specific discomfort. But if you can break out of it, you mm -hmm. can actually go faster. You either got to sink your teeth in, or you got to basically you know wave the yeah. red flag or white flag, whatever the saying is. White yeah, but flag. it doesn't sound it doesn't sound logical. Like I can't run this pace any longer, so I better go faster. It's true. Try it out, folks. You'd be surprised. I'm, uh, before we get to today's episode, I am nine and a half weeks of no running right now, Bracken. Nine and a half weeks. We are two peas, brother, except now I'm getting running envy uh, for, from you, which is a new, new feeling. You know, we, we really, you know, we really lost sight of my needs here with my, my bum foot. But uh, I think I mentioned, but I got the results back and it's a stress fracture, the cuboid. And man, that thing is just still looking. I mean, I got that MRI eight weeks after the initial injury. It's looking like it's fresh. And so I was thinking back to an episode we did with Jesse, Jess McConnell, Olympian. And she had said, well, it was kind of tragic that she had known, you know, running partners that got injured, cross trained so hard that their injury didn't heal. And here I am nine and a half weeks, no running. And I still have a 
freaking cracking my foot. So I'm trying, and you know, I've been hitting it pretty hard. Like I don't, I'm not a lazy POS. No, you were. And maybe to, maybe to my detriment right now. So I'm rethinking what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll just get a beer gut. I'm going to order maybe like, I don't know, a couple of cases of the running public beer, just sit around for a couple of months. Really, really, really uh, heal my body, not work Some out. Some part of me doesn't think? believe you, and it's every part of me. <laughs> I get, <laughs> no, I, I've got some. I'm, I'm messaging those guys to get more beer. Oh, that part, of yeah. Me I mean, true. CC me on that. I'll CC you on it. Yeah. Anyways, I got to figure out what to do there because man, fractures should heal faster than that. Uh, any stress fracture I've had, the most time I've taken off is eight weeks, and I've been able to get into running like in a responsible manner. But not there yet. So I don't know what you do with a small crack in your bone you that is healing. That's what we're going to discuss. I might go to my shockwave uh, therapy guru and just hammer the piss out of it for like a month and see if we can just induce some swelling, more swelling, which would induce more healing. We'll see. But um, let's move on to our uh, conversation today, Brack. And these people are getting a double dose of what they want. Yeah, we were inundated with messages. We had more than we could hit in an episode, but that almost always happens, but we have like three or five left over. We had over 20 left over. And so we just are doing a two-part episode here. Your weekend long run is a Q&A. Yeah. And it's, you know what I've, I've found is the thing I like about the Q&A, and I hope you guys agree as listeners, is we talk about things that don't cross our mind to talk about on our own on Training Tuesday. And it's good to hash out those those details that don't, I don't know, aren't foresight for us. So I like doing the Q&A because it gives us a chance to dive into some things that we wouldn't normally. It's it's nostalgic for me too. When I was young, we had Saturday morning chores to do. Every Saturday morning, we had to do our chores. And as soon as they were done, pancakes were waiting for us. But the entire time, the soundtrack to our chores was Car Talk on 620 WTMJ AM on radio. Where <laughs> people call in and they just describe their car issues and these two guys just try to self-diagnose it over the airwaves. And it kind of reminds me of that. Now, they're far more successful and knowledgeable than we are. We're just two guys plodding away up here. But it's it's really fun to mm. me to have one to three minutes per question to dedicate it to and just try to hit it as best you can and move right on rather than fill the time for 40 minutes on one topic. We just get to hit it, give our best off-the-cuff reaction and move on. And I kind of have fun with it. Yeah, you were listening to NPR, huh? Oh, as man, a kid. I grew up on it. That's why you're so brainy. You're so smart and studied and just know a little about everything, huh, Bracken? You're being really nice today. I'm trying. I'm trying hard. Bite my so I've got a good question to kick it off. This is, I wouldn't say it's a timely question because there's no races coming up. And so sponsorship activity is low, but it's very poignant for our sport because our sport is the like ultimate example of people doing anything for exposure. We are yep. kind of embarrassing at times how much people in our sport will do for a free pair of socks or for their picture yeah, to be used bad. on social media. So anyways, we can get more into that as we go, but I want to read the question first because I know you've got stuff to say okay. on this and so do I. Sure. Great question, by the way, from Zane Freeze. What's up, Zane? If a company or business or brand approaches you and wants to sponsor you, what are your top three to five requirements for a green? Have you ever turned down a potential sponsor for any reason? And if so, why? Have you ever approached a company and asked them to sponsor you? How did it go? What would you do differently? What is your value? That's a lot. It's a lot of angles there, but it's all it's part of the puzzle. So. so that's why I want to start with it. Take as much time on this as we can, and then we'll breeze through the others because people do need to hear what we're worth in this sport. 
Well, and I would like to point out with that, that I hate to say this, but performance has very little to do with your ability to get a sponsorship or at least an ambassadorship. Is that how you say it? Ambassadorship? Anyways, uh, so uh, if you are up for it, and this is an expensive sport, it really is if you are dedicating your time fully to training and racing. So cutting costs by getting a sponsor of a product you really like is like economical and I would pat you on the back for trying. So um, I think this conversation applies more to the age group athlete or the lower tier elite athlete than it does like the high end pros. Um, But I will start the conversation off with first, uh, it never hurts to ask. And two of my sponsors are Endure Elite and VJ Shoes. And I slid into their inbox without them ever approaching me for anything because I'd used their products, enjoyed them, and then tried to get their attention in like a respectful manner. So um, it never hurts to ask. I had some race results to back it up. I had already stuff on my social media, like with their product or using things that, you know, that they make. It also doesn't hurt that you have 45,000 Instagram followers. Yeah, but they're all like losers that watch The Bachelorette from back in the day. I think I have, I think I truly have 10,000 organic fitness OCR followers. And I think I have 32,000 followers who are complete trash. That's what I think. (laughs) When you look, and then I'll let you talk. When you look at the back, so you can go in and do the analytics. And right now I have 8% 8% of my followers are men and 92% of my followers are women back in. And those women followers are no yeah. sour athletes. So there you, I can't imagine many are. So there you have it. What's your take on that question? Well, I think it's, it's tricky because if you have nothing from a sponsor and someone's offering you product or a discount on a product you already use, then that is a benefit to you and it's worth exploring that. However, In this day and age of social media, people are getting a massive return on their investment for getting ambassadors on board. Advertising is costly in the business world. And when you are doing it for free or when you're doing it for product, which does not cost most companies much money to actually churn their product out, then you are cutting them a massive, massive deal. The problem in our sport and with social media in general, is that for every one of you who is willing to say, no, I know what I'm worth. I know what this brings into you. I know that if I bring 500 likes to a post, that's worth X amount of money to you in your pocket because that's going to convert to Y number of sales. For every one of you, there's 100 people jumping up and down like, hey, man, I'll do it for free. Just give me product and shout me out. So there's less power in each person's no, because there's a million yeses out there who who will take your spot. However, I I do think people, like you said, it never hurts to ask. It never hurts to say, here's how much I value myself. Are you willing to work with me on that? Because we do too much for too little in this sport. Oftentimes when I have done it that way, they've agreed as well. They're just going to throw a low ball offer, whether it's here's one product and we need three posts from you in the next six months. And you're like, the product's worth 40 bucks and I have to now post three times about it. You say, no, I'll take six products and I'll post twice. And suddenly they still say yes. They're just gonna shoot you the lowest option possible. Yeah, negotiations never start with the best offer you're going to see. Even if someone says, hey, we have no budget left. Here's what we can offer you. Either they're being Mm -hmm. truthful and they've just told you that they don't value you enough (laughs) or they're lying to you. 
they wouldn't be reaching out to find people if they didn't have budget left. So it always is worth saying, okay, I hear that. Here's my counter to that. And you don't do anything foolish or ridiculous, but there's always something that you can add to it that will make it worth both of your time. So that's long-winded on that approach. What are my my must-have qualities to have a partnership with a company? A, it must be a product that I firmly believe in. One that I would use if they weren't sponsoring me. Or one that you would make on your own at home. <laughs> exactly. Like Enduralead. <laughs> I yeah. bought my first Enduralead product. I bought my me first pa- pair of VJ shoes. In fact, I ordered them from Matt Murphy out of Australia when all you could do is order them from overseas. You, there wasn't a US dealer first. So I bought my first pair of VJ. I bought my first Enduralead. And then I was able to come on board with them. That's That's the kind of thing that I would partner with. I will not partner, and I have said no to companies who I don't agree with their social media presence. There was a Mm -hmm. uh, fitness brand that was offering everyone in the world, but their owner was kind of a hothead and used a ton of profanity in all his writings that he did, all his posts, all his, and that's just like, I'm known as a family person with little kids. Like I just don't align with something that I wouldn't want them to see. So it has to fit my lifestyle, Mm -hmm. my personality to some extent and what I would normally use. And those are my three must-haves. Uh, what if your moral compass is just a little cracked and and all you want is just free then stuff? And that aligns with your compass, right? Then it aligns if, if it's true. If your compass doesn't point true north, if the company doesn't either, then that aligns with you. I don't begrudge people a living. I understand that we don't all need to stand on a pedestal and say, well, oh, I'm holier than thou. That's not the way life works. Everyone's got to go make their living a certain way. But it's finding out what your parameters are and then being true to that. I say as far as the content you're putting on social media, I am by no means an expert and I post less and less every month, it seems. But uh, putting good stuff out there and getting ahead of the curve as far as like, yeah, you're wearing your VJ shoes or you're taking your Endurally and you're posting, you're not asking anything of them yet. You're just letting it be. And then one day when you strike up the courage or you feel like it's time or you're deserving, then you can maybe ask or approach. And they'll go and click on your page at minimum and look and say, oh, look at this guy has been an ambassador for us without even truly being on our roster. Like they, good people appreciate good people. And if you're portrayed that way, it tends to work out in your favor. And and the, the one thing for me that is big is, so I have like three main sponsors right now, which is VJ Shoes and Duralite and then Gone Rogue. And all three of those, and even Gone Rogue, which is like my highest paying sponsor. They, um, they don't require anything specific of me other than a few things. They say, hey, you use our stuff, make it organic. And like when you use it, like post about it, but we don't, we're not going to tally how many posts you make. We're not going to hold your foot to the flame, like in regards to like every little thing you're doing. We're just glad to have you. And I noticed that's really important for me because social media can be exhausting to stay on top of. And so there's some good companies. Enduralite works that way. VJ Shoes works that way. And Gone Rogue all work that way. If I don't post for two months, I'm not even going to hear about it because they just trust in their people Mm. enough. And so I think that's really important versus the timeline babysitting model, which you see a lot. I probably get, oh man, in my personal email inbox, which I have on my Instagram bio, I probably get two to six Instagram collab offers in my email every week. And then I probably get one or two into my Instagram DMs. And it's someone that wants to send me a pair of shorts, that their new company startup that wants to have me make one post mm-hmm. on their product. If I said yes to everything, I'd be posting every day of the week, some gimmicky bullshit. 
anyways, so point being, I just don't think you should, I don't think you should partner with companies that ask too much of you. I think they should allow you to be yeah. you. My response to every yeah. one of those, uh, those hit ups for collaboration is, um, I don't guarantee posts because I won't post anything that's not true. So if I end up not liking your product, but I have to post about it, it's going to be like, Hey, I tried this and it really wasn't for me. So you don't want that. So yep. if you trust your product and you want me to test it out and then review it with you, I'm happy to do that. Send it over, but I'm not going to post about it until after you and I talk. And 90% of the time yep. you don't hear back from those people because they don't want that. They just want their guaranteed post. So yeah, finding someone that's a legit company. And the nice thing about our sport is we have a lot of mom and pop stores. We have a lot of people who are mm -hmm. making it on their own and the face of their company is them. So you look at Fit Aid, they're getting yeah. big, but like the Fit Aid guy in the US races at all the races and he's there talking to you. He's mm -hmm. grinding and Duralite, VJ. These are all guys you will see at the race venue and we'll talk, when you email them, you yeah. talk to them or their spouse. That, that's the way, and, and that yeah. makes it easier to work with people who are relationship driven. Yeah, yeah, I don't have much else to add to that other than just be authentic with stuff. Don't sell out for like a one free watch unless it's very much worth your yeah. time. And it's really easy to see the athletes out there who are posting because they're required to, because their page looks like advertisements. And then there's people who you can mm -hmm. tell like Kempson, I, I like to use an example. He posts sponsored stuff from time to time. And it's stuff that he lives that life. It's not like, Hey, mm -hmm. this is me hanging out on a, on a cliff, by the way, use 35% off for this non running related product that has nothing to do with me sitting <laughs> on a cliff. It's he's finishing up a run in his VJs and having his post run athletic brewing and that's organic and it, it works for both sides. Yeah. Well, there's also a difference between if a company's writing you a check for $5,000 that year and they require five posts, like, yeah, I'm, I can be bought on a product that I really mm -hmm. enjoy. And, and you just don't see those offers a right. lot though. So all right, into the running topics now. First of all, this is a question that I get all the time. Racing shoes for people with wide feet. Oh, there's not a lot of them out no, there. No, OCR there? shoes, you have a decent selection. Innovate makes things in a wide range. Um, the biggest yep. downside of VJ is that they fit very narrow feet and that's about it. Um, Sockney makes a couple wides, I think, but I guess, yeah, maybe you don't have a ton. Innovate's the best place to look, but this question is specifically about road racing shoes. So I'm going to kick it off with a pedestal. Generally, you need less light racy shoes than you think you need. I, I think agree. that the age of the four ounce racing flats is coming to an end as people realize how much extra cushion and forward propulsion is better than having the lightest shoe possible. Couldn't so agree more. I have racing flats. I have four ounce racing flats and I don't wear them above a 5K. Right. Because eventually like that return on investment with the like impact yep. and then the muscle breakdown along the way is going to actually be a detriment over time. Unless you're one of those like hundred pound, you just seem to skim across the land runners, which God, I don't know who is. Uh, it just doesn't work for you. More shoe is actually better. Any, I would agree with you. 5K is my upper limit these days. If I'm going anything further, I'd like a, a real shoe on my foot that some could argue would be a training shoe even at times or in between a racing yeah, and training shoe. Tweeners, the lightweight racers. I mean, the lightweight trainers. It was like seven to eight, maybe nine ounce range. Just yeah. a nice, like lightweight responsive trainer slash. So I do not pants. actually know of a racing flat made for wide forefoot or wide foot in general. The closest you'll find is ultra and that's zero drop. And it's very 
particular to the people. And then Topo Athletic has a good wide foot shaped mm -hmm. box. Otherwise, you have to move up to that lightweight trainer or the more cushioned racing flat. And then there are a ton of options for people. You know what shoe I really do like uh, on the Ultra line is the Ultra mm -hmm. Escalante. Um, it's light. What is it like eight ounces maybe under seven and a half? But it still feels like enough shoe. And man, like it looks goofy when you put it on your foot. It's got that big wide toe box and not a lot of material to back it up. That shoe feels fast as heck to me. I got sent a free pair from them with a Nordic Track partnership I had. Nordic Track and Ultra have some partnership. And I got them in. I let them sit in my closet for eight months. And then I said, well, I'll just run in these stupid looking things. And they became my favorite shoe in my first run. And I would race in the Escalante. And that have all has all the room you could ever need. So uh, that's just one from personal experience that I would Yeah, the Escalante is a great line. They have the Escalante Racer as well, which is a little bit more stripped down. But they have the Ego Midsole. That's the name of their proprietary foam they use. And it's a good foam. It's springy but firm. Um, also, New Balance is doing great things with their shoe lineup right now. They have their fresh foam, which has really taken a big step forward from what it used to be. But they have a line of these lighter shoes that you could train in or race in. The Beacon, um, they have the 890, they have uh, the 1400 is one of my favorite racing flats. All these shoes, and that's a racing flat with a little bit more to it. They all come in wide as well. New Balance is one of the only shoes that makes almost every shoe they make available in extra widths. So that's where I would definitely look to there. Uh, the Beacon's a great shoe. It's like a Hoka type shoe where it's got a little bit more cushion, but it's super light and it feels pretty quick. I enjoy just to throw them out there. Uh, I think Saucony just makes a little wider forefoot in general, from my experience. The Saucony Ride, which is a nice training shoe, but it can be used, I think, as like that heavy racing shoe. I like the Saucony Ride a lot. Um, and then in general, I feel, and I don't wear these anymore. I haven't worn them forever, but Asics tend to have just in general have a wider toe box. So you could find a version of their shoes if you're looking at the road, but I don't know much. So Saucony has the final shoe I'd recommend people try, and that's the Kinvara. Yeah, Kinvara is fantastic, isn't it? The midsole started to get dated. It started to be feeling a little bit dead compared to some of the newer technologies, but they updated their Ever Run to their new midsole compound. And it's a it's definitely less cushiony and more like a fast-paced shoe now. So the Kinvara 11 mm -hmm. has a little bit update to it, but they have widths as well in the 11. So the Kinvara 11 is one of those like seven-ounce, racing slash training shoes or you can wear it for either i own the nines and the tens and i like them and they now come in with so that's that's a really good one to look into too and they make them in some nice bright sexy colors they like to do that with that the kinvaras are a sexy shoe so there's good options here all right this is a polarizing question or at least worth a debate this is from okay. a european i was thinking a lot about this recently which world championship is uh, i mean is more impressive to win spartan or ocr worlds what's the better victory Oof. to have which title means more i think there's no right answer to that because um you have two camps on obstacle course racing and it's the completion camp or it's the like workload camp and they're very different uh i would argue that when you look at the total participation level spartan wins mm -hmm. every time as far as like the number of people towing the start line that you are competing against. However, at the top end of both, I would say the, the athletes are well, pretty much the same athletes. 
and the same caliber. So winning either is equally impressive in that regard, even though this year numbers are lower for like an OCR world. Um, I don't know, man. That's a tough one. It is because I would say Spartan is harder to win. We have definitely we don't have repeat winners like back to back to back years. John Elbins won every single year at OCR Worlds. Now maybe he's just so exceptional at that style of racing that he's the best. But the fact that we've had so many different winners at Spartan would tell me that Spartan is harder to win. But I think it's easier to be consistently good at because it's such a a singular skill set. You have to be great at running mountains, altitude, and heavy carries, and just enough grip to get through without failing. So if you have that mm -hmm. skill set, you can be top 10 every single year. And we see guys do that every single year. It's the same players. There's one or two new guys. Whereas OCR Worlds, you have John Albin winning. Usually Ryan Atkins is right there. And this whole host of names from third through 10th changes every single race. So I think it's more difficult to be consistently good at OCR Worlds, but it might be more difficult to win Spartan World Championships. And I don't know if you have to pick one or the other, no. really, because they're both equally impressive. Um, and I've never done OCR Worlds. I've done the first NORAMs they had in, down in Texas, which is like an inaugural race, which only the good old That's boys right. did that year. But um, And that was like a scaled back version, I feel like. That was like, uh, you know, they were just testing the waters. But... I would say with my experience at that race that um, there were some failures that impacted the outcome of that race. And so, but the same guys were still up front. So I just can't, I can't really pick one. My heart's with Spartan mostly because I like to get that long grindy carry thrown at me in a race or two. And that's what brings me back. Oddly enough, we all know the obstacles are completable once you train hard enough and consistent enough, but um I don't know. Subjective, man. I don't there's think there's not. a clear way. It's, it's two different ends of the spectrum. Spartan is for, more physically demanding in that you have to be at top gear the entire time. OCR Worlds is the more difficult, tricky race. The obstacles are head and shoulders above more difficult, and it demands a wide, a wider skill set to be good at it. So I can't pick. Yeah, it depends what you define because... For example, you're really bringing well-trained athletes to Spartan World Championships because we've all known, seen, and practiced everything. So you're getting the best version of everybody. So you're really, it's more of a level playing field. When it comes to OCR Worlds, a lot of people have seen some of the obstacles and some haven't, and it can detriment a great athlete or let like a less, I guess, how do you define a great yeah. athlete? I don't know. But um, but you understand what I'm saying is that there's like that that little bit of gray area which can allow for mix-ups or slip-ups. And I don't know if you're, other than Albin, if you're necessarily seeing the order of talent play out in the way it should all the time. I agree. It is yeah. obstacle racing at its purest form at OCR World Championships, and it is mountain mm -hmm. obstacle running at Spartan. Two different races. Yeah, two different I races. I love them both. I've, I've done OCR Worlds at least three times, every distance. I've, I've done yeah. their 3K I've done the 15K. I've done the team race. They did a 700 meter short course one year. I've, I've done every version, and it's fantastic. If you, which would you pick? If if you had to, I mean, which which I guess you pick Spartan. Clearly, it's what you've been doing. But do you have one that you would pick if they were both on the same day at the same place? Travel wasn't an issue. Would it be an easy decision? Well, I would for play you? to my strengths. I'd take the 3K short course. So you'd pick 3K short course over Spartan World Champs if they were on the same day in the same city. If I was Hands going down. for a win, 100%. What you like yeah. to do the most. Okay, so you'd pick OCR Worlds. I would. 
If I was picking okay. the spectacle and the venue and the atmosphere, I'd take Spartan Worlds. There's nothing like it. Yep, that's fair. Oh, here's a good one. Compression short recommendations that keeps the package from being completely on display. <laughs> well, what are you wearing under your compression shorts, bro? That's the thing. Most people aren't, at least initially. It's about what you wear under the shorts. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I, how anybody would wear nothing underneath there. It's pretty revealing. And once you get wet, then it's real revealing. There's a lot of people that wear nothing underneath. Nah. I got my underwear, which I love. They do a nice job. Mudgear made a version of like an, uh, a brief or boxer brief that went underneath. Uh, it's about what you wear underneath, man. You can wear anything. Heck, I used to wear my... Like for the first three years of racing, I wore my H and M sport trunks, which are cotton and like got like bananas on them. And I'm like wearing those underneath my. You have to up your underwear game. You got to find some sort of performance material, compression style brief to wear. What do you wear? I wear, these are like four years old. I bought, they stopped making the, they were uh, Life by Jockey, the microfiber brief. It's a very specific brand and they don't make them anymore. So I bought two six packs and I just kept one in the closet and I just cycle through them. I don't wear them ever back to back. I just cycle through them to give them the least amount of wear and I'm going to run them until they're out of elasticity. Yeah. I've been impressed with Runderwear. They, uh, they hold up nice. I'm going to check Runderwear out. They're expensive though. You know, you're going to pay like, God, what did I pay? 60, 70 bucks really? for three pairs. You know, they cost, they cost money. But, um, you know, they wash well, they wear well, and they've held up for me. So uh, I, I like that brand. But I don't have a lot of experience with others. But you got to be putting some underneath your, your compression I like shorts. it so much now that I cut the liner out of my split shorts. I think I've said this before. And I wear my, mm -hmm. my performance briefs instead of that awful liner that running shorts have. Way more comfortable for me. Yeah, it gives you a little more support. You don't, and and those, those liners that are built in are a little loose. Yeah, got to up your underwear game. Yep, that's the deal. Okay, here. This is Nick Riker, and this is a deep question. What kind of research do you guys look at when you're looking at new training methods? Mm, mm, for me, not much because I haven't trained, tr changed training methods in quite a while. I'm a sponge when it comes to literature and, and looking things up on the internet, but uh, not, not much, man. I haven't tr changed my training style a ton. How about you? I'd, I'd put everything through the smell test first. If it does not fit what we know to be true about endurance, speed, or strength training, mm -hmm. then I don't put too much stock into it. I'll still read up on it, but I'm not going to test it out myself until I believe that there is really some truth and merit to it. And for me, that does not mean long-term studies. That doesn't mean white paper somewhere online that tells me this you know, truly uh, in-depth scientific study that's been done on it, peer-reviewed and all. I don't need that per se because... There are great ideas that haven't been around long enough to get funded and to get great research, but it needs to make logical biological sense to me. That's my my first one. If I mm -hmm. all the time you'll see someone pop up be like, "This is the new style of training, and it gives what does wonders." Well, that doesn't even make sense. That flies in the face of what we know. So, I just use a smell test. I like that, and you know, you really have like like when I look at training, I look at like four components uh, potentially of switching up in my training. Do I focus on more long threshold work and see what that does to my race capabilities? Do I focus on more short, intense interval sessions, maybe even some high rest, see what that does to my top end potential? Do I increase my amount of vert and elevation and put a focus on those sort of things to increase my run potential? And then final piece is, 
how much of the compromise running do I want to do? So I look at like threshold work, short speed, hill work, or compromise running. And I will go through blocks like, oh, I'm just going to get speedy and see how it translates. Or I'm just going to do this, do a lot of vert and see how it translates. Those mini experiments are going on constantly. And and I think I'm going to play with that once I return to running uh, whenever that is. But um, those are really the components that I just look at playing around with. And so it's more just shifting percentages than anything for me. It's not completely, ch- even if you look at Richard Diaz's book, uh, Training the Dark Side, he's really just taking those all those components and just mashing them up in a new way himself. And, and those for OCR, what I look at is like the four pillars. And so it's just percentage. Yeah. And this is why I'm such a proponent of micro changes to your training schedule, where you just extend everything as best you can in your progression and reset with a micro change and a micro tweak here and there. And why I like simple workouts, because then you get to play around with these things. If I don't think 10K pace is right for me, I'm going to try this next block with 5K. But you're doing the same interval style. You can just change. I'm working 2% faster than race pace this block. Next block, I'm going to work 5% faster, and I'm going to see what happens. Mm -hmm. When you're doing repetitive workouts, again, if your goal excites you, your workouts will excite you. And boring workouts are easy to see your results. And that's why I like that kind of thing. But if I see something in training that intrigues me, if I can make it work in a form that I'm used to, I can see how it affects my fitness compared to what I used to do. Yep. I'm going to the boring workout approach as soon as I return to running so I can make it scalable. I can make it objective instead of subjective and I can track better. And what was it that you said? Um, you said something last episode about on this topic and now I'm forgetting what it was. Do you recall this brilliant line you mentioned last episode amongst no, the many? No, I, I don't even know what you're referring to, unfortunately. I'll get back to that. One thing I do want to say is that I think that everyone should look into cycling and swimming more. I mentioned it before that that's when I first heard the term um, critical velocity was when I was researching swim training, swimming and cycling. I've talked about that. I believe humans respond well to repetition training, interval training because of how we respond to stress, adaptation, recovery, that whole process. Cycling and swimming are very technical in their approach to their quality work. And they do such simple workouts, but it allows people to just always progress and always know exactly where they are with their fitness. So I would, I would really suggest looking into if you're a self-trained or self-coached, or you just want to know more about how systems respond to stress of training, look up cycling and swimming training. They, I believe that they are ahead of run training almost always. Hmm. And they partner with scientists more than running coaches do because we have so much jargon and gray area in our sport that we like to take the philosophy approach rather than the lab approach. And one's not inherently bad, but I think you got to marry the two together. So look into those and see what cyclists do and swimmers. And I think it puts into perspective what we can do with our own approaches to running. What you mentioned last episode, Okay, I remembered. It was it was simple, and it was that you shouldn't change your training style if you're oh, improving. Um, you you should ride that out until you feel like the stimulus has has done what it can do and has reached close to its ceiling. Um, and that's why we recommend like you time trial regularly. You have staple workouts that you can go back to. And if you're stagnant for you know even a month isn't necessarily good, but let's say you're three months deep and you're like I am not going anywhere. That philosophy should change potentially, and your stimulus should change, but. I don't think it's necessary to like throw things at the wall and see what sticks if you already have one thing that yeah. is sticking. 
And I just wanted to bring that up because that was a good point you well, made last you. episode. Hobie Call does things a yeah. little differently than a lot of people, but he went five or six years with maybe five or six different workouts that he did, quality workouts. He had two speed mm -hmm. workouts, two OCR workouts, and two long run workouts. And he had two strength workouts. So eight total types of workouts he did. Man, could you imagine prescribing to one of your athletes like after you've been working together for six months and they've only seen eight different quality workouts in six months? <laughs> That's how I know the type of athlete I'm working with. Is, is their reaction to a progressive block of training when they look at it and go, uh, I'm hope, can we do, can we add some more things to this? Can I do this? Or this looks a lot like what we did last time versus, oh, I can't wait to see how this, how my time on this changes compared to when I did it last time. That's, that's like the number one thing that I mm -hmm. love hearing from athletes is when they get jazzed up looking at a block they've already done, but with little tweaks to it. 100%. Know what I find funny about Hobie Call is Hobie Call is like the reason you've been injured twice in your life and the reason Hunter <laughs> mentioned in his podcast. And then we didn't talk about it, but like Hunter was trying to do shit Hobie was doing and ended up injured and you tried to do stuff yeah. Hobie was doing. That man has been the, the, the catalyst for more injuries than he knows because people were trying to mimic his That's crazy right. training. And that just speaks to you got to oh. progress into everything. Got to stay in your own lane. That's right. Nick Riker also says, can we start an annual road mile for OCR athletes? Obviously I'm in, but Nick, instead of, I think you thought you were going to get an instant agreement and yeah, we love this. I'm going to call you out. You're just trying to get an easy win. This guy ran 426 last year on the roads and he thinks this is my chance to get an OCR world title. He's going to get crushed. I'm going to smash him. I'm going to make him feel like the little kid he he's is. Expecting, he's expecting a, a, a walkaway victory. He's got another thing coming. Nick, it's on, baby. It's on. In a well-oiled wrestling match, who wins? The Bracken or Captain Kirk? Who asked that question? Matt Kempson. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to say me, hands down, and I have a I have one distinct reason for it. You're going to go for my knees? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually no, but I actually have done something called olive oil wrestling, which is where you butter, you know, everybody's buttered up in olive oil, drenched, and then you get after it, man. And uh, I've done it. I have experience. Experience matters. So I'm a tenured olive oil athlete. Correct. So it has, and the hair pulling thing isn't part of the equation. So uh, that's not an option. Like it's not going to help me, you know, if you had a head of hair beat you. Okay. What about you? Who's winning? I will never concede in a physical competition to any man on this planet. But if you think that you're more experienced in oil wrestling, I'm just going to give you that. <laughs> you yeah. I'm going to get my forearm, my bicep underneath your gooch, right? You can't get out of that. Once I'm around you there, underneath you like that, I'm just going to pick you up and I'm going to body slam you. Because that's what the guy did to me the first time I olive oil wrestled. And I was like, that makes so much damn sense. He Go got gooch. underneath me. Yeah, going for the gooch bracket. This, is, uh, this, this could be a whole episode. Advice on tapering for a high rocks competition, given recovery from running and strength training. So high rocks, for those of you who haven't done one or seen it, it is eight workout stations, 1,000 meter run plus a strength station. Anything from a super heavy sled push to weighted lunges, wall balls, rowing, ski erg, all that type of fun stuff. So you have to do a lot of power and strength work, and you also have to do a lot of running work. And so he's asking, what's a, a ideal taper for something like that? Um, gosh, it doesn't look a ton different than like a true endurance taper because nope. you're going to scale back um, both, uh, ideally. The one thing I would say is I do like a heavy strength stimulus the week of like even a strength-based effort 
Uh, I would probably put it on Monday or Tuesday at the latest and I would keep the rep count low and just make sure your body's nervous system is like ready for like the, it's simulated and ready for, and prepared for like heavy load. Um, but other than that, like, you know, I just wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing burnout lifting within three to four days of that, of that event. And I would taper my running. Like I would taper my running for any running event, to be honest, I would just dial back the strength a little bit more like I would the running. Mm -hmm. Now I've done two high rocks, so I've tapered twice for high rocks, and I can confidently say that it's not a ton different from anything else, like you said, except the points of emphasis switch. For an OCR or a running race, your strength training needs to be backed off while your running needs to be sharpened, because you want to arrive at your highest possible running with the best possible strength you can bring to the table that doesn't affect the running. High rocks is different. There is more time to be won and lost on the strength portions than there is on the run. And so you need to arrive with the highest possible power output with whatever type of running you can bring without compromising that. So that means periodizing and tapering your strength training is the first class citizen in your running is you do what needs to be done to support your strength taper. Well, and it's in high rock specifically, you like, are you ever working faster than like threshold effort when you're running? Like, would someone, would someone say like, would 400 meter repeats really prepare you for how that race is going to feel? No. How, it, what's going to prepare you is like the, like a five mile tempo run as silly as it sounds for an event like that is going to prepare you better than doing 12 by 400 meter repeats. Sure. They both have their place, but you're never going to have an, a chance to access that type of speed pacing or feeling because you're going to be too compromised from the workout station. So you should be doing, I would argue you don't need to be doing a lot of the sharp flashy stuff, but yep. you got to be doing more of the, the grindy, um, like yeah, yeah. Base day power. Great stuff. 10k running shape, eight by thousand meter workout shape at high yep. rocks. The spread in the top 10 guys on the runs is like 10 to 12 seconds per thousand. So, whether you come in in great running shape or, or okay running shape, everyone's running within 10, maybe 15 seconds of each other on every rep. Mm -hmm. The stations can have two to three minute swings. And so the return on investment just isn't the same for running. So typically, and we haven't talked about as much an actual true taper like a track athlete or a marathoner might do for strength training. Typically, what a pro-level performance-driven athlete will do is they'll do their power output training, five reps or less, all season long. And as they start tapering their running, they taper their lifting to more plyometric-based, explosion-based lifting where they start doing more plyo or doing weighted explosive exercises rather than peer lifting so that their ground contact time is optimized and their explosions optimized and everything is used to just firing but they're not taking muscular damage anymore so yeah transis transitioning to single leg movements as yeah well. and a lot of plyo and i would not do that for high rocks i would taper like i was going into a power competition where i need to arrive mm -hmm. with the maximum power i can be but rest it up a little bit ready just to, to like pr a lift yeah, I can't, I've never done one, but I can't argue with that based on the principles I, I would follow myself. All right. Well, we're in agreement then. How much? We sure are. How much is, we talked about this one a little bit last time, but I think this is worth saying again. How much is natural talent for the sport important versus putting in work? I love and hate that question. Yep. Uh, natural talent is the most important piece of the puzzle, in my opinion. Um you know, I didn't know I was a good runner and I went out and ran my sixth grade mile in gym class 
and almost lapped everybody. And I wasn't training. I was an active kid, but I wasn't training. Um, however, great athletes aren't made by having one or the other. It needs yeah. to have both. And you can make up a lot of ground once you become a true student of the sport and put in consistency over time. Doesn't mean you're destined to suck if you suck initially, but you're going to have to do everything right if you want to catch up to the guys in the front. Yeah, yeah what, what's that? That, that famous quote, hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. Yep. I like that. Quote. And it's true. However, hard work being equal on both sides. Yeah. Talent wins, but talent mm -hmm. tells you what your ceiling can be. Hard work gets you to your ceiling. So yeah. you have to be able to work hard either way. You, the, the, the thing that I don't care about talent or the thing why I don't care about talent anymore is because we can't control it. You're born with what you're born with. All we can care about is working hard and maximizing it. And very few people truly maximize your talent. So then hard work wins. You know, in sixth grade, Bracken, we, I was in science class and we were talking about lungs and breathing and yada, yada. And we were, and we blew up balloons with one breath to test our lung capacity. Mm -hmm. And then you measured the diameter and everybody compared. You remember doing that? And I was underdeveloped. I think you were underdeveloped too. I was, you know, when they lined you up for class. Oh yeah. Okay, well, I, when you, they lined you up for class pictures, I was always one of the last three or four, and most all the girls were in front of me. And I blew that balloon up bigger than anybody else in my class. And I remember thinking, like, my dad was a runner. It was a good one. That makes sense to me. And little things like that, like, kind of stuck. And it's just an example. Like, yeah, I mean, one of the talents I don't have is saying injury-free, for example. But, like, you either had lung capacity or you didn't as a 12-year-old, right. you know? And those things are like, you can't do much about that. Yeah. yeah you're born yeah. with what you have and you're lucky you're if you haven't, but hard work is a perishable skill and it's a learned skill. But you will see, and I know 5Kers who were, God, I mean, there's some Olympic caliber athletes who were 17 minute 5Kers in high school. And I know that sounds fast to a lot of you, but a 17 minute 5K, there's 10,000 high school athletes running that in, in, the, in the U.S., and then that, and then six years later, they hone their craft, and suddenly they're holding that pace for a marathon or faster. So it it's not like give up now. It definitely is not. You see those stories all the time. There was a guy who finished up near the top of the U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon who did not break ten minutes in the two mile in high school. Okay, that's a great example. And so ten minutes in the two mile is five minutes per mile, which he didn't break ten minutes. Yeah, he's still fast. He was, but he now kept that pace for 26 miles eight years later. That's not a normal progression, but that's what mm -hmm. can happen if you just put in that decade and a half of work or decade of work. Yeah, exactly. Case in point, yeah. I broke, I ran eight, nine fifty-two. I ran two, two miles as a senior. I ran 10.05, then 9.52. And that 9.52 is still faster than my 5K pace. So I have yet to extend one more mile onto my high school two-mile PR which means, A, there's some training deficiency that had to be addressed. And I probably was in that shape, but never used it in a flat 5K. But the point is, I didn't extend my high school two-mile pace one mile, and he extended his 24. That's perspective. You know what? Your high school two-mile PR is two seconds faster than mine. Really? I ran 9.54 my junior year. I never ran it my senior year, but my high school PR stands at 9.54. Little story. You got All me. right. My senior year that I ran one just as a qualifier in case I wanted to run it at conference or regionals or try to get state in it, but I didn't expect to do good. I ran a solo 10.05 in like 30 degrees and snow flurries. It's like, you know what? I think I could run pretty good in this. So yeah. 
and I hadn't done well in cross that year, but I'd put in my off season of training for the first time. I got to the conference meet. I won the mile in 426 and it cost me a lot of energy because I had to kick all the way through for it. Couldn't even warm up for the two mile. I was so tired and they went out really slow and we went like, I don't know, 502, 450. And I was in the type of shape that 502 felt like recovery from the mile. And then I closed in 450 and I was not in that fitness. I was just in a winning mindset at that time. Mm, and that has some, that has power. It does. I was not a 952 two miler. I was a gamer. Mm. And that's something that that guy took and added 24 miles of gamesmanship to his running and, and other people do not. Yeah. I lost to the, uh, the famous Chris Selinski in that sectional in the two mile. Uh huh. Not much it could do about that. A guy who ran 840 in the two mile is a first a, a white man school. to break 30 minutes in a 10K, correct? Or first white American to do it as a high school? No, no, as a pro. To break 30? Oh, sorry, 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 to break 20. Let me start over. First white man to break 27 <laughs> minutes in the 10K. 27. That I believe. I was like 30 minutes. So there's a shitload of guys that have done that. He ran what? 2659. 2659. Right? And, and that's another great story. You want you want fucking perspective? Look at Chris Zielinski, for example. You want somebody who'd come and clean up our sport? This dude's like 6'2", a buck 80 at when he was in high school, buck 70 probably, and running in the Olympics for the United States. Yeah. We should be shaking in our boots if that guy ever gets us. He slimmed down to like 165 to race as a pro. Dude, he's a great example of you can run fast when you're big. That guy running is like a fright train. Yeah, yeah. First white man to break 27 minutes in a 10K, which if you do the math, is 13.30 back-to-back for 5Ks. Yeah, hear that, Ryan Woods? He could run 20 seconds faster per 5K in a 10K than you, Ryan Woods. was in the race. That was back when Schumacher and Salazar, the two coaches of the main two Nike training groups in Oregon, were still semi-cordial. They brought all their guys together for this twilight meet so that Galen Rupp could try to break the American record in the 10K. Slinsky won Selinsky was not there as the poster boy. They all, t- they didn't even, uh, Salazar wasn't sure if he wanted him there because he heard he was in great shape. Selinsky showed up, ran his first 10K, I believe, or second 10K, and was going to drop out halfway because he had some side stitch happening and his body was burning so bad. He was about to drop out. He said, I'll give it another 200 meters. Gave it another 200, gave it another 200. It started to go away, ran up to the lead, won the race, and became the first non-African under 27 minutes. You know who else has a story like that? And then we can move on is, do you remember the other athlete about the same time frame? Alan Webb came up and ran his first 10K. Do you remember? And didn't he come or set the American record at the time? I don't think it was before well, this even ran happened. like 27, 13 or something in a 10K. Something ridiculous. And he had never raced higher than like the mile in like years. Yeah, he was a 346 miler and did that. But I, I wanted to share that story because we had talked about races lie to you about to quit the race because he just his body was feeling so bad he knew it wasn't his day and then ended up running the greatest non-african performance in the history of the world that still stand by the way galen rupp has not run sub 27 uh galen rupp has yeah they've since he has uh, he has okay i I don't pay much yeah he broke it in a solo effort in uh in eugene one night crazy craziness what's the next question we're, we're just telling stories and getting tangential today we are assuming obstacle proficiency is even or, or is is adequate slowest 5k or 10k time in order to, con- to compete with the top 10 in our sport top 10 in the nation like top 10 like top 10 in our yeah. sport now we've answered this before 
there's not one answer because there are there's a whole range of it, but I don't know if there's ever been someone that hasn't run in at least in the 15 mids that's top 10 in the sport. Uh, not a not well, I'm going to say, and this is out of Ryan Kent's mouth, that he believed at one point he couldn't run faster than like 1620 or 1615 when he was running when he won Seattle two years ago, his first US National Series win. He said, I didn't think I was faster than. I definitely wasn't in under 16 shape and I, there's no way he just never tested. He's doing five by mile sub five. Let me give you perspective. I ran 1541 in a 5k time trial and ended up taking 10th place at West Virginia U S national series race at 1541. And I had two guys right behind me and I got beat by 12 minutes by Robert Killian who won that race. And I was in 1541 5k shape at that moment. So, and there were a host of guys behind me that could run faster than that. Probably. Yeah. I look at it like VO two max numbers, how I say I don't care about them, but all the good people have relatively high ones. That's how the 5k is running 1520, 1530 in a 5k won't make you top 10, but you can't be top 10 unless you can run 1520, 1530. Now, if we're talking like a local race, I think a 17 minute, 17 flat 5K can podium a local race if it's the right race. If it's the right, it's the right one. Otherwise, you got to run 16 flat, I think. To win a. There's very few gimmies anymore, like Chicago last year. I took third at Chicago last year in pretty good shape. Robert Killian shows up. Tyler Veerman shows up. You know, they're guys who are top 10 at Worlds are showing up to these races. So it's getting harder and harder. So, no, you don't need a number that you have to hit. But by the time you're good enough to be top 10, you're just hitting those numbers. Yep. I agree with that. But yeah, you got to be in the 15s for sure. And even even the high 15s, you might crack the top 10, maybe. Mid to low 15s is really what kind of shape these guys are in. And Woodsy, Woodsy's been in sub-15 yeah. shape. Botris is probably in sub-15 in the 14s right now. So VJ will probably be there shortly. Jordan McDougal. Uh, uh, Josh Mc... No, sorry. Jordan. Jordan McDougal. There's two McDougal brothers. Jordan McDougal ran 14 minutes in the 5K and ran for Team USA mountain running and did not make a podium at any of his first several OCR races. And he was running Savages. Um, he was he did OCR Worlds, DNF. Like his speed didn't get him there. Yeah. It's just it's not enough to have that one metric. But it's but OCR here's efficiency, but, but, like they said, you've got to be mid to low 15s to have a chance. But perspective, if you're going to go run a super course and be in the top 10 on a relatively flat course with some shitty terrain, you still have to be running like 520, 530 at the slowest, but even down to five minute pace on that shitty terrain in order to place in the podium or top 10. Now, perspective on that, let's say it's even 515. Let's split the difference. You're still talking like a 1625 K pace that you're running through a nine mile shitty race. Uh, with obstacles. So like, that's what it takes. Well, Ryan Kempson last year, he's, we interviewed him on when I was with obstacle dominator after that win. And he said, he got to the point where he knew he could run in the five twenties coming off of any sort of fatigue. So in Jacksonville, when he had his breakout race where he won that super in sloppy conditions, every flat, he just kept looking down and he was running in the five twenties and he knew. I, I thought it was five fifteen. I think he hit that at times, but he was never slower than the 520s. I mean, he he kept thinking like, am I going too hard? I'm in the lead. Am I going too hard? But he just said, no, I just kept seeing I was in the 520s right around 520 and I was fine here. 
yeah. And 520 is 1635. And so he can just settle into that while fatigued for an eight to nine mile race. So that just, again, gives you perspective where you got to be. On the female side, uh, I, like to, I like to go about two and a half to three minutes slower. So 1530 for men. So we're talking 18 minutes. 1830 for women is where you got to be at to be able to sniff the top 10 in the sport. Yeah, I think everybody's running sub-1830 for a time trial. On a flat course, anyways, the good flat course yeah. runners. There's some good mountain runners that don't quite have the leg speed. We're kind of talking more flat courses here. but um, Even, the mountain, course, even the mountain course. Who's considered the slowest stud in the world in terms of foot speed? Ryan Hackett? Yeah. Robert Carey? Uh, I was going to say Ray Akoma. I'm talking – oh, sorry, men. Yeah, Ryan Atkins gets bagged on. Yeah, and he runs 15.40 in his solo time trials for a 5K. Yeah. So, yeah. No one's slow. When you're in the pain cave, what are some of the dark thoughts you have? Uh, fuck, 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 <laughs> fuck. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I mean, the dark thoughts are it's it's that little, you got the devil and an angel on one each of your shoulders, and that devil is screaming to stop. I mean, you turn a corner on a, on a hard effort, and the wind's in your face, and suddenly the effort is just too much, and you want to pull the plug. Um, that happens all the time to wrestle with those things, but... It's how much of it you let really sink in instead of just flicking it off your shoulder quick. And that's really the key. I like to get an internal story going that someone did me wrong or someone ahead of me doesn't deserve to be there. I like to pick a a villain and put it all on them, make it personal. Mm -hmm. And all right, you can take my pain. This is your fault. You know, put, put, put it, put it, take it internal and move it external to someone else. I think I just. You just have to remind yourself, for me, what what does it for me is reminding myself of what's to come, what's coming up, what I care about, and knowing that if I choose to slip here, that it will affect my performance in the next race I care about. And that's enough for me to stay torched. Like I, I don't need anything more than the motivation of the race coming up and the fitness to be displayed than to keep me on. And if if you don't have that, like you're probably missing a whole component of your mental grit that you you need to work on. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but but he he just asked what the dark places were, right? Uh, the dark places dark thoughts. Dark oh, it's just it's it's the urge to slower quick. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Why am I doing this? You don't do that. You why am I doing this, right? Yeah. I don't need to oh, F Mary Kill. Okay. All right. Well you can I just swore like twelve times in a row, but I guess everybody knows what F Mary Kill is. Hunter, Benny, Mappy Davis. <laughs> I gotta know who asked. I don't know. Claire and Nordic, Claire and Nordike. I I like that question. Uh, so Benny Hunter or Matt B. Davis? Yeah. Who? There's no winning this question, just so you know, because everything gets judged. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna f Hunter. A wild ride, I'm sure would treat everyone real nice, right? I'm going to marry sweet sweet Benny because he seems just like a good companion. And Matt B. Davis is the competition, so he's he's off. Right. What about you, Brian? You got to answer that. I'm gonna now. shake things up. I'm going to F Benny because he's got to be a tender, sweet lover. Okay. I'm going to marry Matt B. Davis Ooh. because he can provide. I know he's got a stable job. I know he's a go-getter. He's going to provide for me. I don't know if Benny's ever had a job for very long, longer than mm-hmm. a year. I just know Matt's going to be there. And he's older than me. When he goes early, I'm going to get his money. And I'm going to take out Hunter because <laughs> – yeah. Very few people have ever, like, he's never been dominated physically. I'm going to hand-to-hand fight him to the death and be the one to take out the sheriff. Okay, okay. How do you think, um, you know, two different podcasts living under one roof, how's that going to go? I mean, he can keep 
You gotta, you gotta support each other. It's more of a news, gonna... a news outlet than we are. It's true. That's true. Great, great question. Here's another good one uh, from Matthew Kemp. Is warming up at home before going to the gym effective if my gym has a time limit? That's a real world question right there. How far away is the gym? That's the question, right? This is what I do. Uh, and I run cold. I like, you as do. In, like I get cold. I get cold. I'm wearing a sweatshirt always. You notice when we record our podcast, my airs at, my house is at 72 right now and I'm wearing a sweatshirt. Anyways, um, I think warming out at home is very effective. I think that's, it's actually a time and a place. I'm an overdresser. I would get into the car. I would wear pants and a sweatshirt and have the heat on, or at least not the air on. And I would be sweating underneath my clothes when I exited my car and walked into the gym. And I think that's a very effective way to do it. Um, I also don't know if you're warming up for run workouts, if you have treadmill workouts you're hitting, but just park in the parking lot and get your warm up in outside. I've done that mm-hmm. plenty of times. Yeah. And then get in. Um, but it's all about just keeping that body temp up and that sweat going once it is, in my opinion. So um, do the little things that are just going to make sure that happens. I'll say this. I was an under warmer upper. My, it's not a good it's not a good person to be. And by. then I got to college and I saw successful athletes. And one of the traits I noticed is they were all anal about their warmups, whether it was our football team, our basketball team, the sprinters on our track team, our the tennis team. There's a good tennis team at Whitewater. Everyone took their warm-up seriously to the point where when we played a lot of intramural sports um, and, we, and people from different teams came together to make like all-star teams for intramural flag football and for basketball. And we had a serious dodgeball league. These guys are doing full warmups before every single thing before dodgeball. We're out in the hallway doing a skips and doing arm swings and stuff. Like I, that's where I finally picked it up and then going to nationals and watching all the best people in the nation doing their extended warmups. I became a warmer upper. I went from yeah. not being a warmer upper and now I'm a warmer upper. And so I, I like you before when I play men's league basketball, I'll ride the bike for 30 minutes at home or uh, there's one league that I play in that's three quarters of a mile from my house. I run there. I'll do in like arm swings and skips on the way there because I'm not going to yeah. be the guy like running laps around the gym, but I warm up for everything. So yes, warm up at home. Even if it leaves you by the time you get there, you'll rewarm up faster. I, I agree with that. I think, I think it'll just shorten the process for you. And I don't know. I think there's some power to like staying hot and uncomfortable in your car. I've done it a million times on the way to places, on the way, like, yes, I'm hot. I'm sweating. I don't like this feeling. I'm sitting in my own sweat because I warmed up at home. But like, you can get out of your car and roll, baby, if that body temp is still up. So like, turn the heat on, sweat it up. That's fine. It's only going to help. When I do winter runs or trail runs or even summer sometimes, anywhere I'm going to work out, I get a little sweat going, I overdress, and I have the heated seats on when I'm driving there. I'm I'm making yep. sure that I've got sweat rolling down me so I can hit the ground moving. When you get out of your car, you're you're looking forward to the cold air. I tell you, didn't we talk about this on our winter running podcast, which is one of our first we did, was I put all my running clothes on in the house and then piss around for 20 minutes, like finish my coffee. And then I've got like a sweat going and I want, I'm like, I need to get outside because I'm hot and I don't enjoy like, now I need to move. It's like putting on all your, your, you know, just warming up like that way is like works for me in the winter. Big time. I guess that back to the things people should do that the pros do. Pros do extended warm ups for every activity they do. 
and they're in shape enough to do an extended warm up with it out to compromise their 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 workout or their race they've earned that right but like i think people under warm up in general especially mornings at spartan races and it's 45 degrees and you're standing there in your compression shorts and your cutoff shirt and you're shivering when the gun goes off like we get into that trap a lot so like you're going to get yeah. bad sleep either way. The difference between five hours and six hours is not a detriment on race day. Get up an hour early and get moving. Yep. I'd rather get to the start line slightly tired than stiff. I brought up Ryan Woods already about his 5K or comparative. Um, I've stayed in the same hotel, not the same room with Ryan Woods a number of times. And I'll be there eating my cereal because that's what I eat the morning of a race. And I look out my window and Ryan Woods is out doing plyometric drills. He's doing strides. He's moving in the parking lot before he drives to his race and then watches warm up at the race as well. He runs through a bunch of dynamics. That dude's out at five in the morning while I'm sitting there with messy hair, eating cereal, doing work and getting ready for what's to come. He's a really good lesson there. And I've seen it both times we stayed in the same hotel. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. Yeah. What is your take on running while high? I've done it a few times and really enjoy it. I've never done it, so I don't know. Have you? I have a buddy, um, very successful vegan bodybuilder athlete, and I respect him. He's a student of his craft, uh, also a student of the Chiba. <laughs> and before big lifts, he um, he would say, I'll, we would lift together often, and he would say, so I'm going to go home real quick and take care of business and then come back. And he would he would go home and smoke marijuana and then come back rage and ready to go. And he he claims that it helped his focus and his workout. And so that was his habit. That's the only pr- perspective I have on that, even a little. I when I was when I lived out in Colorado, I knew people that loved smoke and trail run. Sure. Do your thing. My take that might frustrate people, but this is my podcast. So I'm going to give you my real personality here is that that falls into the line of, of exercising versus training. If you're out there to go enjoy yourself and really experience nature at its utmost, I'm not going to begrudge you that, but very few pros are going to do that. So mm-hmm. if you're not aspiring to be a pro, like go have your fun. But um, obviously there's drug testing in the pro pool and so that you're playing with fire. I don't have perspective or experience there, but I cannot imagine that it, enha- it truly enhances performance and high-end output. I just high don't, end, I don't, don't think so. There are people who extol the benefits for ultra training. Okay. There are people who play around with different strains for different type of run. Like it, it's a serious thing. I just don't get into it because that's not my jam. Well, that's the same equivalent when it's an, it, ner- it affects your nervous system. It's the same concept of taking a shot of fireball at the turnaround yeah. and a half or drinking a beer every hour, like same concept, I suppose. Right. Let's, uh, oh, here's an interesting one. Morgan Schultz, if money wasn't a thing, what is your and Kirk's dream jobs? Hmm. It's a good question. Go ahead. I mean, I pro athlete. It, would, would, would it be this with this sport? No, but now that I've been in it long enough, the travel, the mountains, the trails, Kind this kind of is the dream job just without the stress of having to provide would be the dream job. If you were just set mm-hmm. and you knew, Hey, all I got to do is show up and run some awesome trails and have a blast. That would be it. But yeah, I, th- I think being a pro basketball player would probably be my, um, I used to think baseball, but I think a pro basketball would be my ultimate dream job, but that comes with fame and fame's the worst. So this might be it. Talk running all day, go have fun and then just never have any bills to pay. little backstory on why we are called the running public. Uh, we're called the running public because I follow a channel on YouTube and a podcast called the hunting public. And 
these guys, a couple of young dudes living, you know, out of their, their RV, traveling the country, teaching folks how to go out and be a more ethical hunter. They're outdoors. They're putting lots of miles in on feet and they are professional bow hunters of deer and turkey. Um, same connection to the outdoors, a lot less pressure when it comes to uh, like physical exertion and performance. Uh, I would aspire to be either like a media human being for the hunting world, bow hunting, ethically bow hunting with like good morals and helping people understand, or I would uh, join a professional bass fishing circuit and uh, I would do something of one of those two things easy. And I would run in the mornings just so I don't get fat. That's what I would do. Yeah, I think pure enjoyment wise, you've got it. And you, 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 you're such an outdoorsman that that doesn't surprise me. But I know I'm my best self when I'm training hard rather than exercising with a goal. And so I think this is my dream job. I think running and talking about running is my dream job. You're living the dream. Trying to. Okay. But if it wasn't for the hunting public, I, I don't think we'd be called the running public. So it gave us my hobby segued into this collaboration in some capacity. Do you remember what my number one choice for what this was going to be called? The KB Corral. KB Corral. <laughs> Kirk and Bra- it would have been so. It would have been so different if it was the KB Corral. Kirk and Bra- so just our corral. We're gonna we're gonna How- do whatever we want on our ranch. KB Corral. <laughs> KB Corral. How are you gonna sell people? purposeful run training plans from the KB Corral. Listen, there was no rhyme or reason. That just hit me viscerally. <laughs> I, the KB Corral. Yeah. Did I, did, I, did I have to twist your arm to call this the running public or did it I then knew. hit you? I right. knew that I didn't like any of my ideas. I just liked that the ring of that one more than any of the other ones. I knew none of mine were worth it. Do you remember some of the other ones? We had a whole... Guys, the naming of this podcast was, was a feat in itself. We did two things that took longer than anything else other than this website. A, <laughs> yeah. choose the name, and B, choose the intro and outro theme music. Yeah, that the theme music took us a week just to dive through that all and then deduct and then cross, and then we have to agree on it. Now, that was exactly the process of choosing names for our children. Yeah, I believe it. it works. You both come through millions until you can't see another name. And finally, you're just like, all right, you make your top five. I'm making my top five. If we have any crossover, that's the name. Except mm-hmm. you did what I did to Lisa one time. I said, this is the name. I railroaded her. Yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty, had conviction there. I like it. I'm glad we right. went with it. Next. My lactate threshold seems to be very high. hundred, my tested lactate threshold seems to be very high. 185 beats per minute. Should I still set my zones based off that? Yes. How did you test it? If it was a legitimate test, then yes. Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that running a little under lactate threshold is detrimental to your training. I think most people run their tempo, their threshold work too hard. And so if you truly don't believe it, you could go a few beats under. I don't think you're hurting yourself, but it Mm -hmm. might just be the kick in the pants you need to work a little harder. Not knowing you at all. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's like my Garmin 935, my 400 935 gives me a lactate threshold number and it gives me also a lactate threshold test i can go mm-hmm. through and if you're one of those rich wrist watch heart rate monitor guys we all know those are inaccurate that could be giving you false data yeah. there and i wouldn't necessarily trust it however if you did go to a lab and those are your numbers i would be confident in recalibrating everything based off of those 100 i mean if somebody's drawing your blood right isn't that how they're testing your lactate threshold mid-workout like if you're getting those real real results then 
brother, you just don't listen to the, no the, the norm. Don't worry about 140 heart rate cap on easy days. Your heart rate cap might be 155. I don't know what it would come out to. Yeah. Yeah. If it was a legitimate test, trust it. If you really don't trust it, recalibrate it yourself. Look online, search lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold test running, and you'll get three or four really solid options and do one or two of them. And I also think that how long do you think you should be able to sustain your lactate threshold number? If you were to go out for a run before you start really hitting the bricks, like what's the answer there? 20 minutes? I think max gun to my head in practice, 40 to 45 minutes. But I okay. think that comfortably so, in training runs, 20 to 25. 20. Right. So sir or ma'am, I would say go out and get your heart rate up to lactate threshold and see if you can hold it for 20 minutes. If you can without wanting to just, you know, quit, then I think it's accurate. Yeah. That'd be a good thing to I do. I like that. Yeah. All right. Are there speed standards for running like there are strength standards for strength? In regard, in regards to what? I assume for being good in our sport, but I would argue that there aren't strength standards for strength. I know that there are numbers people like to hit, like a 300-pound bench or a 500-pound squat, but they don't guarantee you success at anything. The 1,000-pound the club? Are you part of the 1,000-pound club and the big three, bench, squat, and deadlift nope. in the same same week? Nope. No? Shoot. I've never tried. Maybe you should try. I can help okay, guarantee just... that I wouldn't have been at my strongest. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe that'll be part was... of my manly week. I'll hit the thousand pound club. Well, where you get, I mean, what did I do? I think I was at a 300 pound bench. You hit a 300 pound, pound bench? Yeah. I got it on video. Nice. Yeah. Uh, 315 pound squat and a 405 deadlift, I think is what got me there. And that was only 1020, I think, or 1040. Like it's not much over. What did you weigh? Take some big numbers. 175. Okay. That's a pretty stacked yeah. Kirk. Yeah, I've been up to 180 before I was going on TV and knew I had to look jacked for the public. But other than that, I'm, I'm sitting 172, weighed myself this morning. Well, I don't think there are speed standards, but I think the gold standard for guys for the general populace is to get under 20 minutes in the 5K. Since this is a guy, Gary Kirshner, he and his wife, Dory, have started work with me. I love that couple. They're awesome. Well, is he asking in a general sense, though, or no? Or do you think he's asking in a performance like to do well in Spartan racing or a road race? Well, I think that for the guy, you got to shoot to get as close to under 20 as you can in a 5K. Mm -hmm. He's an age group athlete um, in his 40s. I think getting low 20s or maybe even trying to break is one of those metrics to try to hit. And everyone wants to break six in a mile and then eventually break five in a mile. And deciding which one of those is your legitimate opportunity is, you know, up to you. Yeah, I'd say 24 minutes for the 5K for females, seven minutes for the mile, maybe 23 minutes for the 5K, yeah. uh, I would say, if you're talking general populace. Yeah, I agree with that. If we're, talking, if we're talking entry into an elite Spartan race, I would talk I would talk 18-minute 5K or 21-minute 5K for the ladies. I have three questions left, Kirk. Sweet. How fresh should your legs and body be at the end of a deload week? Should you have any residual fatigue or should you be around 95 to 100% restored? I am never feeling that restored at the end of a deload week. I usually feel the following week is where it hits me. Um, people go into their deload week and think, oh, it's my deload week. My Tuesday workout now is going to feel fantastic. I will tell you like nine out of 10 times, my Tuesday interval or hard workout still feels like trash because that deload week hasn't taken set yet. Like it hasn't sunk in. So sometimes I'll come around for Saturday. And be like, oh, I finally, like my legs are back. But a lot of times it's that first week back into my build where my deload week really pays off. So I don't think that you should necessarily be feeling snappy by Saturday of your deload week. Uh, that's often not my experience. Yeah, I'm going to say that right? it depends on what style of training you're doing. If you're doing that season long, ready to race, 
non-periodized, you should feel pretty darn good at the end of your deload. But if you're doing a periodized build, deload is like, get you back to life. Like, all right, I went from not sure if I'm going to complete my next week to still dreading the next week, but I know I can get through it. Because in a good periodized build, you're working on overload and you don't necessarily feel very good during the meat of the training. So it gets you back to life, but it doesn't make you feel like a million bucks. Your taper and your peak makes you feel like a million bucks. Yes, correct. Yes, there's a big difference there. And I would say this deload week philosophy tying in with taper, which we've never done an episode on yet because we haven't had races coming right. up, but that's been on our list. But um, the reverse taper, I deload, take a deload week, two weeks out from a big race. If we're talking a race, like a two, three hour race, like West Virginia or Tahoe, and you have a huge build, you take a deload week, two weeks out, and then kind of taper in that lead in week to the race, really, because that deload week doesn't have a chance to set in until the following week. If you're truly training high volume in preparation for a long race, um, it's just something of note that I have learned over the years that that deload week needs to happen to two weeks out from a big race versus a week out for the simple fact that you're not fully recovered even yet at the end of a deload week. So you shouldn't just deload one week and think you're going to go race fantastically. It doesn't work that way always. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I'm nothing to add to that. This is another version of the question we answered last time, but it's such a common one that for anyone who didn't listen last week, let's let's give it again. This athlete says, I finished the Killington Ultra in the open division last year, but I still don't know if I'm ready for age group. I'm scared of trying it. What should I work on and how do you know when you're ready to move up? Now we talked about this. You compare your time to age group. What did you say, Kirk? If you're in the top, if you're better than 25% of the people there, you are for sure in. I said, if you're better than than the back third. Back third. So the back 33%, without questions, you're ready to jump, go for yeah. it. Yeah, and mentally- that should give you your your confidence. If you go in knowing I'm going to beat a third of the people here, you're ready. But in terms of just things you should work on and standards, I think in the age group that walking's a thing of the past. So if you hundred percent, if you're ready to move to age group and you're not sure, um, you've got to be prepared to, to race the entire course. Now, you, you, age group is no let off. You get out there and you put your best effort and you don't walk. So that's that's kind of my big litmus test. Even if you can beat a third of the people. If you're out there walking, those you're a candidate for getting in the way of people in the waves behind you. So that's one of the big points there. And then finally, I always ask, what excites you more? Are you more excited by age group or open? Does the thrill of competition in age group drive you? Go do it. Does the stress-free nature of open excite you? Then go do that. Yeah. And there's a big difference between going from open to competitive or age group than going from age group to elite. I do think you can roll the dice a little bit. If you because of the, the feel in open is often uh, some are having fun and some are taking it seriously, but that, that competitive twinge isn't quite there as like a general feel. So sometimes I think it's okay for an open waiver to, to roll the dice on a smaller race and jump into age group or competitive and see if that provokes a new level of try out of them. I think it's less risky than going from competitive to elite without knowing that you belong there. So I think it's okay to roll the dice and see how you stack up and see what it brings out of you. Because the open doesn't often give you the chance to do that. I agree. Yeah. So I looked ahead. The last question is not a serious question. We're, we're ending on a, a lighter note. This is from Nicholas, a guy that I coach. He asks, Bracken, why won't you double date? Nick, Tell me Nick asks me, 
semi-regularly to hang out with him and his wife and do activities. He's always inviting me places like come out to Devil's Lake and spend the afternoon with us. We're going to barbecue or come rock climbing with us or come down to the lakefront or let's let's get dinner. And I just always say no. Always. Have you guys met before? Yeah, yeah he's been to my house. Okay. okay, so you know each other. Yeah, yeah it's, not a, it's not a Nick thing. It's a me thing. I don't do things with people very often. No? I mean, I, I have three You're- kids. I have a house that's an ongoing project. I live next door to my parents. So there's always something happening with my time. If I have free time, I like to do a me project like working out or, you know, building this website or getting ahead on coaching, or I like to spend some time with my wife. I'm one of the really, really lucky people that my wife's truly my best friend. And I know that gets like smirked at or that gets tossed around a lot. I actually like hanging out with my wife. She's probably mm-hmm. the most calm, relaxed, down to earth, just chill woman I've ever met. And we're just good friends. We enjoy watching movies. We enjoy running. We enjoy the same kind of things. And so it's almost like double dating takes away from my time to hang out with my best friend. And now I split it with two other people that I'm not, I'd rather be with my wife than other people. So I guess. Yeah, well, that would make sense. Yeah. So it's not you, Nick. I just don't double date with anybody. That's not fun to me. Some people. Well, you're a social person. You're a, you're a general type A social person, at least when I'm around you. So it's not avoiding other people. It's just that you have to prioritize where you spend your energy and you only have so much energy to spend. Yeah. And, and when I'm in a social setting, I'm very social. And oftentimes mm-hmm. it's, it's at the detriment of Lisa. And so like, mm-hmm. I'll get in a social setting and I start like I talk more than she does. I dominate that conversation and I'm engaging with the other people and we get home. It's like, hey, good to see you today. <laughs> we right. spent the whole evening and we didn't even talk. Nick. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like if I'm going to get a babysitter to go on a date, I'm going to go on a damn date. Yeah. And, but you know what though, too, and I don't have kids or a wife. Um, but like if you are working a full-time job and you really take your training and recovery seriously, and you're trying to be a good dad and a good husband and all of those things, you know, like your circle gets smaller and smaller as you get older. My circle has shrunk. I mean, tenfold in the last 10 years, it's embarrassingly small. Now you keep the close ones close and you just, you can't really put the energy into too many things when you have your own personal endeavors on your plate as well. People struggle with that all the time. Like I say no more than I say yes. And I feel bad about it for that reason. But like, when you look at like, like we talk about burning matches in training, well, you can only burn so many mass matches in personal relationships as well. And before it starts negatively impacting like the ones that are, you know, really close to you. So I understand what you're saying there. And I'm not even as busy on that front as you are. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. The sacrifice like that, that that social sacrifice, the simple little conversation. Nick's Nick's probably a great guy. And and you probably love to hang out with him for work. Right. Yeah. You love to hang out with him. If I'm going to hang out with Nick, Nick, let's like, we will do a workout at Concordia. That's good because if I'm going to spend four, like 30 minutes driving there, 30 minutes driving back, but I spend the time in between at the workouts, now I haven't wasted time throughout my day. But like rock climbing, as much fun as that is and as beneficial as it is, if that's a three-hour chunk of my day and I still have to train and I still want to spend time with my kids and my wife at night, like that three hours has to come from somewhere. So there's a lot of people who that fills their cup. That doesn't fill my cup. That, that to me, I'd spend the entire time looking at my, my watch like, man, I've got stuff to do. And I'm, I'm kind of just killing time here. So I wouldn't even, it, it doesn't even strike me as fun. Well, and there's something very real called like the athlete guilt. And the athlete guilt is like, like Faye example, Faye Stenning does a very good job of somehow balancing everything out. 
Uh, most can't do that. Being by people and drinking pina coladas fills Faye's cup in a lot of ways where that would only detriment my life. And the athlete guilt is real. You just have to start making priorities. And um, something I've worked on through COVID actually and injury because I've said no so often to people uh, that I've had conversations with close friends about it. Like, hey man, like are we even buddies anymore because you skirt around getting together? That's been a focus of mine since I could give a little bit my athleticism was getting together with people that I hadn't made time for before. So it's just like, I think a lot of you out there would probably actually feel that Mm -hmm. way. Like I say no, or I choose to not hang out instead so I can get my own priorities done. And that's like a very real thing we deal with. I'm a tweener personality. I really enjoy social settings, but I prefer to be alone. Once I Is this like a nice segue for you? Like we're not really together talking. We're still like apart and you're still kind of alone, but we're just not alone. I, I seek isolation at times as much as I'll seek friendship. I, I enjoy to, uh, to spend a night at home as much as I'll enjoy to go out with buddies. And when I'm there, I enjoy it with friends 100%, but I don't seek that out. That's just not my that's not my jam as much. There's something internal about endurance training that I think a lot of us have that component to ourselves and our lives. That sol- so yeah, solitude, the need to just sort of be by yourself for a bit. It's half the reason I run. I'd rather have people come hang out at my house than go meet them at a restaurant. But I've never once mm-hmm. regretted going to a restaurant. It's just the urge isn't there. Now let's go grab a beer and go to a restaurant, Bracken. That sounds fun. You know when we'll do that. It's when we have our hill workout the next day. That's right, baby. Soon. Um, that's the last question. That was supposed to be a lighthearted question. And it got it got real. Nick, this is as genuine as anyone has ever said this line. It's not you. It's me. I'll hang out with you, Nick. You sound cool. He's a fun guy. I'm gay. I've been working on being a better friend lately. That's been on my short-term to-do list. I've been working on being all about <laughs> me. <laughs> that's not true <laughs> um what else we got to wrap this thing up with anything i don't think so I, I i think it's time for a challenge though put it out there i want to see everyone do the treadmill challenge oh it's time it is we haven't we haven't put a call to action so take me in your treadmill challenge send the treadmill screenshot we'll we'll, we'll shout out your prs get out there and hurt that's a great session everybody's looking for something to do something to focus on something like what's my next workout going to be i don't know what i should or want to do 15 15 test 15 minutes at 15% incline, as far as you can go, is a great thing to plug into your program anywhere. No no time is the wrong time. We got tagged by someone this week, actually, that did it, I think, the same day I did, unbeknownst to crushed it, and had a great result and also said, I did it as more of a mental gut check day than as a, I didn't need a time trial. I just needed to be gritty today. I love that. Yeah. All right. That's a good, uh, that's a good send away. We did ask for reviews in our last episode, and I think we got one. One. I'm going to go read it right now. So thank you for that review because that meant a lot to me. That actually made my morning. Thank you for that. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to go read it and get a little late afternoon pick-me-up. All right. Hopefully this got you through your long run, folks. Kirk, let's hang out sometime. Yeah, let's be buddies.